Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Americans are fascinated by crime. Just look at all the movies and books on crime gangs and the mafia from The Godfather to The Sopranos and then, well, the prequel. There's a new sort of criminal element gripping America's imagination. They're the drug cartels who dabble in more than drugs at a time when a record drug epidemic fueled by illegal substances rages in America. Here to tell me more about it is Corey Cepeda, author of the best-selling and critically acclaimed book La Familia Loose Ends and he's my guest coming up. So cartels really number in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, you know, worldwide. They're, they are probably one of the most dominant uh, forces throughout the globe. Uh, a lot of times I get asked, well, how do they differentiate from the mafia? Uh, and, and my first thought is, you know, the mafia is very family centric. They are a smaller group. It's not to say that they don't have a universal reach, uh, but the mafia likes to uh, stay a little more uh, closer to home in, in their areas where cartels really love to expand uh, throughout the globe. Uh, one of the things that also sets cartels apart uh, is their military background. A lot of uh, cartel members are former military. Uh, I think with one of the cartels down in Mexico, uh, the Zetas cartel, that's where they emanated from was a military base. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. In La Familia Lucens, his first book of a new five-part series, Minnesota author Corey Cepeda of Razor Sharp Publishing introduces readers to a ruling family reigning terror over Mexico, the De Los Santos cartel dynasty. Filled with political intrigue, murder and family drama, the twists and turns take readers on a page-turning ride they're not soon to forget. In my interview, Corey will take me through his own journey and to the moment he quit his day job in the summer of 2019 in the biopharmaceutical industry to become a writer. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Corey Sapida telling me about his new book, La Familia Lucens, the first in a new five-part series. He'll also talk about the role of cartels in our society today and how they fit into his writing. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Corey, welcome to my show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, John. Appreciate it. Where are you today? 
right now I'm sitting in my house. I'm sitting in the office room downstairs. Uh, my wife took the little one to the pool because it's a little hot today. So I've got the house to myself and I'm sitting here where I usually uh, open up the laptop and let all the creative juices flow. So I'm in my workroom right now. Good. Are you inspired at this moment? Well, of course, you're concentrating on this interview, but how do you get inspired as a writer? Everything inspires me. You know, I I think it's a cliche sometimes when you say just pay attention to your surroundings. There's if you just listen to people talk, there's sometimes a lot of things in general life that just hit you and you're like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting topic. And and I, I approach it from that way sometimes. But really, for me, it's I would like to watch a lot of TV and movies. So there's a lot of content to pull from there. Um, you know, just maybe putting a little interesting twist on some stuff. Um, but inspiration comes really for me at any point in time, I'll wake up in the middle of the night to use the restroom and I'll just have an idea pop in my head and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's great. Let's write that down before we lose it. (laughs) So it, it could be anything, anything at all. So you keep a loosely for a notebook and scribble your notes when you get inspired absolutely a little uh, writing tablet and then i've got my thumb drive so if i've got my uh from writing i open up a little file doc and uh make a side note and hopefully i can remember why i wrote that down later on when i come back to it what does your wife think of that she is not, she is a very smart individual. I, I give her more credit than I do myself. She's got a, a bachelor's in genetics and a master's in business. So we, we complement each other in two very different ways. And she doesn't really understand how I'm able to pull all of these storylines just out of thin air. Um, she, mm. it's, it's very different from her and her scientist mind where mm. everything is ones and twos, X's and O's, if you will, mm-hmm. um, to just kind of let that, uh, that fantasy world r- run free. So she, she's a little, uh, uh, peculiar about how I come up with all of this, but she's in total support. She loves them. I, I read the the books and the chapters to her as I get them done. So she knows what's happening and, and she gives me some really great feedback on on things to think about that I may not think about as I'm writing them. So she's an awesome sounding board. Uh, she's been super supportive in this and uh, I'm really happy to have her uh, here with me to to watch me experience this. It's been really great. Well, they say opposites attract. <laughs> Very oh, yeah. true. Yes, sir. Very true. I remember reading about Johnny Carson, the late great talk show host. Between breaks, apparently, he had a notepad and he would take any lines that would come to him or ideas for skits or sketches or he would just write it down. So, you know, people have different ways to work in the creative arts. Absolutely. You have a new book out. It's not new, new, but it's recent. It came out last year. It's about cartels. And people are fascinated today by cartels, drug cartels, as opposed to the old mafia style gangs that used to roam the street and may still do that. And they tended to be ethnic centric. And so are the cartels. But you're going to tell me. Tell us about your book, how you came up with the name, and why it got so much attention. Well, the book for me really just came from it. It was a two-year thought process. 
I, I kept having these visions flash in my mind, more of like movie scenes than actually a book. But every time I would see something, as we kind of talked, I would write it down and write it down. And after about two years, I just had this whole uh, kind of platform to work from. So when I decided to quit my job a few years ago, I had this really awesome opportunity to just sit on my couch one day and crack that computer of mine open and just go and just let it write. Uh, the book La Familia, uh, which is Spanish for the family, is it's a double meaning. Uh, it, it first means this family itself, the De Los Santos family, which is a translation of the angels, which they're definitely not. Um, it, it spotlights this very highly dysfunctional and complex family. And then the family also represents the cartel, this very large network, violent network distribution, uh, supply chain logistics uh, monster that they control. Uh, so there, there's this kind of duality that this family lives in. And this first book, Loose Ends, is a very violent introduction into that. Uh, this, this family is uh, essentially thrown in to a very violent event in chapter one. And that's really the springboard for this whole series. So uh, for me, just sitting down and, and writing it one day was just, uh, I had my chance. I took my shot and it's been really awesome uh, working at it so far. And, and book two is soon on its heels. So everything's yeah. really fallen in place. Where did you get your ideas from? You know, I, I like to take a little inspiration from shows that I've watched in the past that have really excited and thrilled me, things that have really captivated uh, my attention. Um, you know, usually shows that have a very high success rate um, have a lot of complexity and a lot of storyline uh, depth to them. Um, and, and that's kind of the approach that I've taken with my books is I wanted to write from a place of uh, anxiety and excitement and thrill and drama uh, and, and tragedy. But I wanted it really all to emanate from this family. Uh, mm. We know they're a cartel. We know they're going to do bad things. But I want all of this to really come from this family. So as I watch these shows, Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy and The Sopranos and Dexter and, and so on and so forth, all of these shows really evolve around family, if you think about it, yeah. and, and the violence of them. Um, and, and that was what made these shows so amazing was Breaking Bad, Walter White. He simply wanted to do everything for his family and it all went bad, Sons of Anarchy and so on and so forth. But that's the way I approach my books is I want to create a very complex universe where you can see these tragedies that are going to unfold. These family members are going to crash into each other somehow. You're going to watch it unfold, but you're not going to know how it ends. Um, and, and that's the excitement of it is, is to watch this whole scenario of these families play out and you know something bad is going to happen, uh, but you don't know how it's going to happen. But when it does, it's going to break your heart. I guarantee you that it's really going to break your heart. You pulled a lot of your ideas from secondary sources. You didn't actually have any firsthand intersections or experiences with these cartels, or did you go and do some research in that area also? I, I did some research, yes. I mean, I think it would have been a little naive of me just to think that I could sit down and open my laptop and write about cartels uh, without any base knowledge. However, 
Um, growing up, I always had a fascination with cartels, and I don't know why necessarily. I can remember in my early childhood uh, hearing about Pablo Escobar and, and what an evil man he was and being very terrified of him, even though I'm nowhere near him, um, just being deathly afraid of this man. But he intrigued me in many ways. And now as I've gotten older, learning other stories of other uh, cartels and, and leaders, El Chapo and Felix Gallardo and all these other uh, uh, very powerful men that have existed in this lifetime, um, taking little bits and pieces from their lives and creating this one very fictitious, uh, non-traditional family, if you will. I had the opportunity uh, some time ago on my show to interview one of the stars of Narcos Mexico, Alberto Cini, and oh, that was fascinating. Awesome. And I'm sure you've watched that, the drama yes, in it, that and show. that gets a special audience. Speaks to your point about this whole fascination with cartels. Yes, I, I've watched Narcos Mexico uh, probably two times through. Uh, fascinating show. I love that show. Um, that's where I drew a little bit of the inspiration, uh, bits and pieces with my character, Vicente de los Santos, taking from Felix Gallardo, some of the, uh, megalomaniac, uh, narcissistic values, if you will, uh, and, and creating this character. But yeah, the, the actors in that show are amazing. And once again, you know, it's, a, there's a tragedy with cartels that, you know, is going to happen, but you can't look away from it. It's it's such a sad story to hear about that the the DEA agent Kiki Camarena who was kidnapped and murdered. Um, you you know it's not going to end well from him, but yet you can't stop watching that. Um, and and I think that's part of the reason why people are so fascinated with cartels is it's such a lifestyle that none of us will experience, um, but yet we're still so uh, fearful of and have such a healthy respect for um, that we want to try to understand it a little bit. Uh, and, and see this lavish lifestyle that they live in, and the power and, and the influence that they exert. Um, there is something about it where you just, you know, you want to watch this, even though you know it's not necessarily good for you or mm -hmm. good for people. You still want to see it to understand it. But yeah, it's an awesome show. I love that show. So just to I be very clear, I am stating the obvious, but your book is a work of fiction. Is it laced with any reality? Can you tell us a little bit more? maybe about the plot and without giving too much away for readers? So the book I, I would call dystopian. Uh, it's it's definitely fiction. The family is fiction, but I do uh, place uh, them out of Sinaloa, Mexico. Um, I, I do use certain areas and locations. So there are some geographical references people can uh, draw from. Um, Historically, cartels are not family-based, if you will. There isn't a husband and a wife and sons uh, that run cartels in that nature. But with this family, it is very much set up that way. So you have Vicente and Gabriela de los Santos, who have managed to create this all-dominating uh, empire throughout Mexico. They have uh, decimated all competition. They have killed their competitors, and now they rule Mexico as husband and wife. Uh, and that is, you know, kind of non-traditional, non-traditional in the real historical sense of cartels. Uh, what differentiates this family even more is it's a family business with their son, Ignacio, uh, running their cartel with them as their top lieutenant. But with Ignacio, 
you know, he's this young, hungry lion who feels that he can run his his family's business better than his father can. So you have this uh, conflict of the old lion versus young lion clashing with each other. He's going to take his shots to try to dismantle his father, take down his father uh, in ways that sons traditionally would not do. So you've got this father-son conflict in that nature. They have a younger son, Santino, who has grown up with the privilege of cartel, but has very much stayed away from all of the evil uh, forces from it. He wants to better his country. He wants to provide education, provide medicine, provide schools and hospitals. So he challenges his father and his family from a very different perspective, which then in plays a, you know, kind of a conflict between the two brothers, Ignacio and Santino, because they couldn't be any more on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, Vicente has an older brother, excuse me, a younger brother, uh, Aurelio, who is a lieutenant in the Sinaloa State Police. And he is a very honorable, trustworthy man uh, who works very hard to try to bring down his uh, brother's empire, but has to chase, change, uh, fight the challenges of uh, evil, corrupt law enforcement and politicians. And, and he has to figure out a way, how am I going to navigate this, destroying my uh, brother's empire without destroying my entire family? Because they're not all bad. And then lastly, you have Lucita. She's just this beautiful little girl who wants to be a little girl and grow up living this innocent little life with friends. But unfortunately, she's going to realize she can't. Uh, because in this very violent life that her family has created, uh, she's going to become collateral damage. She's going to become a pawn. Uh, and, and she's going to realize that her family uh, are very mean and evil people. So you have all of these very complex uh, conflicts that happen. You have Vicente and Aurelio, you have Ignacio and Santino, and you have these brothers and uncles all fighting each other, trying to uh, assume control in their own different ways. And in this first book, Loose Ends, the family is attacked. Uh, there, there's a bombing uh, at Lucida's birthday party. Uh, and, and this kind of starts the whole train wreck of trying to figure out who would have the courage enough, and I'm trying to be politically correct in my words, who would have the courage enough to attack uh, Vicente de los Santos at his own home, uh, but not nonetheless at his 10-year-old daughter's birthday party. And it's really from this first event that just segues the second book into the third book into the fourth book, because there's this building anxiety uh, throughout the whole books when you finally reach to the fifth one, where everything is kind of revealed. Everybody understands that everything that's just happened uh, in these last uh, two to three to four to five books really started from this bombing. Um, and, and that's really where, you know, this first book kind of takes off from you're introduced to the characters. Uh, there's a lot of cleanup that takes place, uh, and you're going to see, there's a lot of deception right away. A lot of, um, uh, shadows and, uh, secrets to hide. Corey, can you give us some idea of the extent of the carnage and the size of these cartels in the U S and I guess in South America, Mexico, primarily, and what kind of dollar numbers are we talking about? Can you describe the whole scene for us? Yes, sir. So cartels really number in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, you know, worldwide. They're, they are probably one of the most dominant uh, forces throughout the globe. 
uh, a lot of times I get asked, well, how do they differentiate from the mafia? Uh, and, and my first thought is, you know, the mafia is very family centric. They are a smaller group. It's not to say that they don't have a universal reach, uh, but the mafia likes to uh, stay a little more uh, closer to home in, in their areas where cartels really love to expand uh, throughout the globe. One of the things that also sets cartels apart uh, is their military background. A lot of uh, cartel members are former military. Uh, I think with one of the cartels down in Mexico, uh, the Zetas cartel, that's where they emanated from, was a military base. And that style of uh, militaristic training, um, that precision, that accuracy, that violence, uh, that's very hard to match when you're any other type of a uh, criminal organization because you're outmanned, um, you're outgunned with the superior firepower, and uh, not a lot of people are really going to want to try to step up to that type of uh, intimidation. Uh, so what you'll see is they can really just grow and expand across the United States as they please. And you see that everywhere in California and Florida and New York. And even here in Minnesota, we have some uh, places where we've had cartels that have been linked uh, to drug busts and drug raids. And, and that's when you really find out, wow, their reach is really endless. Um, dollar amounts, it's, you know, how much do they really want to make? You know, it's, it's almost uh, an exponential number if you think about it. Uh, Pablo Escobar at his height was worth $50 billion, you know, back in the 80s. Say that again, $50 billion? $50 billion back in his day. Wow. Uh, you know, which for our day and adjusting in inflation, that would, you know, probably be $200 billion, $300 billion. Um, one of the most successful drug traffickers in, in American, you know, in Colombian history and world history, really. Um, and they have their fingers in everything. It's not just drugs. It's everything. It's oil. It's uh opening up uh, car dealerships, it's hotel resorts, it's uh, clothing lines. Hotels? It's, uh, it's hotels, yes, sir. One of, one of the interesting facts about uh, cartels is they have uh, some ownerships in uh, resorts and hotel rentals down in Mexico. Um, this is kind of a, a safe place where uh, tourists can come and, and spend their money and that's how they launder their money. And then it's, you know, this whole cycle of, uh, of drug trafficking, if you will. But yeah, they, they have their, their hands and everything. There's really nothing that cartels uh, won't look at or won't expand into. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Corey Sapida telling me about his new book, La Familia Lucens. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. You use the word laundered. Is most or a lot of the money laundered? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you, the only way to spend the money is to launder the money. And, yeah. you know, they, they look at that as, you know, to have the ability to expand. So 
as we were kind of talking about car dealerships and car rentals and opening up uh, businesses and hair salons and nail salons and all these other things, uh, it just gives them more opportunity uh, to to launder their their hundreds of millions of dollars. The interesting thing with Escobar is back in those days, it all of these opportunities weren't readily available to him, so he literally buried his money in barrels. Uh, and, and, you know, buried them in the ground strategically. And I think uh, even up to maybe five or 10 years ago, they were still finding uh, money that was rotting uh, from his uh, from his day, his era. So, yeah, laundering is a huge part of, of drug uh, trafficking for certain. Now, with advanced technology or digital technology and digital currencies and the like, it's easier for the cartels to hide and launder the money? Well, yeah, because we, we live in an a era now, a generation now, you know, where technology is evolving every day. You know, you you think you have your finger on the pulse of, of how technology runs and somebody comes along and says, oh, wait a minute, we've just advanced it, which also means it gives other people opportunities to, you know, exploit those changes. So mm-hmm. law enforcement is always trying to keep up. Um, when you're looking at digital currency now and Bitcoin and Digicoin and all of these new formats that are being traded, um, this just gives cartels more platforms to to trade their money or hide their money in in different locations. Um, so yeah, it's it's really just an incredible uh, venture, if you will, for them to try to keep up um, and and think of new and creative ways to to keep that money flowing for them because without money that you know then they dry up and cease to exist yeah. and and that is part of what I uh, highlight in in the third book I'm writing right now is uh, kind of that network that's been built to show you know the vast reach and the vast expansion of this family and and when you say cartel a lot of times people just think drugs and sex trafficking are really the main uh, two areas of focus but it's really not. Um, over the last two years, cartels down in Mexico have been uh, tapping into oil pipelines and siphoning off oil. Uh, and that's become the new venture for them. It's actually starting to become more profitable for them to steal oil than it is to sell drugs. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really uh, just, they're evolving with the times because they see the opportunity. So you described many cartels out there, the biggest one being the Mexican cartel? You know, I'm I'm gonna err on the side of caution with that one, just because I if this were to ever fall into the hands yeah. of a cartel, I, I don't want to <laughs> raise one above the other. But what I will say is, uh, I think Sinaloa has always been a, a home stake for the looked at as the birthplace of cartels. Uh, that that's in no way to disrespect, you know, Guadalajara or Mexico City or any of these other uh, states within Mexico. I, I think if uh, you were to stand uh, one cartel member up against the wall from every surrounding areas, they could have a pretty interesting debate about who's the most dominant. Yeah. Um, and and I would say at the end of the day, I personally wouldn't want to get backed into a corner by any one cartel member myself. So um, I, I think, you know, it's up for debate, but I would say Sinaloa is probably the birthplace of, of cartels where it's looked at as, yeah, this is and where And of course, we've had from. cartels in Colombia through the years too. Absolutely. The, the, the home sake of Pablo Escobar and the Cali cartel, yeah. uh, very well documented in Narcos as well. Um, I think most people will look at Colombia still as a cartel haven. 
Overall, you would say the problem is getting worse. The sums of money are huge and growing. They're reaching into different cities across America, and law enforcement is trying to battle them back. Where are we at on the scale of things? Well, you know, just recently, uh, El Chapo's son was captured in Mexico. Um, there is, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, Joaquin Phoenix's son, El Chapo's son, was captured in Mexico uh, at his home. This is a YouTube video that's uh, open for anyone to look at. Uh, but once they captured him, the cartel that he was working for or is associated with, I should say, uh, basically was able to negotiate his freedom through violence and force. Hmm. Uh, the police were outmatched. They were outgunned. Um, they told the Sinaloa law enforcement down there, you, you release him now, or we're going to go to each of your family's homes and we're going to start executing people. There was an open gunfight on the roads. Uh, they, they just, just simply didn't know how to respond. Uh, and he was subsequently released. So I think that right there is a, is a superb indication of how the war is going, if you will. Uh, there's still no way to wrap your arms around it. I don't know if there ever will be. Um, you know, cartels don't play by the rules, so they, they don't have limits as to as far as how they'll go uh, to, to attain, attain their goal. Um, and with the open flow of, of guns and drugs, um, I don't know if you can get your arms around it to stop them. Um, yeah. they're, they're just a very big monster. You cut the, the head off of the snake and there's just two, three more uh, snakes to appear and take its place. So it's, it's um, to say, to use the word overwhelming is still an understatement, even yeah. in 2021. Yeah. I'm trying to understand the modus operandi in maybe in simple terms, because this is complicated. So they're distributing illegal drugs throughout the United States, and they're using their muscle and their manpower to get across the border. So what do they do? They're, they're, they're like this corrupt multinational corporation with lieutenants on the ground, what did they find local distributors, intimidate people to get into certain neighborhoods? How does it, how does it work? Yep. So, you know, it's been very well documented. Cartels have a diverse distribution network, whether it be through underground tunneling systems or just checkpoints at the borders. Um, some of the old fashioned ways of flying them in through planes still, um, walking them across the, the Mexican-United States border with mules. Uh, there, there's a bunch of ways that people still find to get into uh, our neighborhoods and cities. Um, I think you don't, they don't have to look very hard to find people that will help them distribute their drugs um, for two reasons. One, it's a very lucrative business uh, to be able to have a cartel backing you, knowing that you've got a constant supply of drugs coming in uh, every month or week or whatever the, the cadence would be. Uh, and number two, uh, sometimes cartels just get what they want through sheer force, so they don't give you an option. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're going to tell you how it is and that's just it. So I, I would say that, is it easy just walking down the street and asking somebody, Hey, do you want to sell my drugs? Probably not, <laughs> but they, they know the circles that they're operating in. You so know, they have a they, lot of they, intelligence. 
Absolutely. There, there's counterintelligence. There's uh, a lot of bat work in the behind the scenes that goes uh, to vetting people. If, if you look at some of the shows that are on now, Ozark on Netflix, um, the gentleman, the cartel in that has a very, very sophisticated network of doing intel on people, uh, learning their backgrounds, who they've worked for, where they've yeah. pumped gas at, you know, very interesting who stuff. Who we can trust and so on. It, exactly, exactly. This is, is, I'm sure, well documented, but for those who are not familiar with it, do they do big drops into safe houses in neighborhoods? Do they not fear law enforcement might be around the corner? Oh, they're always fearing law enforcement. I mean, n- nobody wants to go to jail or prison, right? That that's kind of the 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 opposite effect of what they want. Um, they they there always has to be this sort of cloak and dagger, uh, cat and mouse game played, if you will. Um, when the drugs get dropped off, not keeping the drugs and the money in the same location, uh, not keeping money and guns and drugs in the same location. There, there are all of these uh, very significant, intricate uh, steps that need to take place. You want to try to minimize the communication as much as possible because uh, not only at a, a city or a state level, you still have the federal government, you know, the DEA that's always watching and always trying to gain a leg up on this. And they have access to far more advanced surveillance equipment than uh, any local or state government. Uh, so cartels and people associated with them absolutely have to play a very masterful game of chess uh, to be able to uh, transport and receive their drugs uh, in a timely manner. And, and you know, it's it's really just kind of that old cliche. It's a cat and mouse game, how, how they're going to try to stay ahead and not get caught. This may puzzle some people and sort of puzzles me a little bit with the growing legalization of marijuana throughout the United States. It varies from state to state. There's different mandates. It's now possible to buy weed on the street or in dispensaries or whatever. You would think that that would almost change the entire fabric of the drug culture and the black market for drugs. And it's like you go back to the days of prohibition where we had bootlegging. And then, of course, that was lifted. The idea of bootlegging anymore is um, is history. So I would have thought that we would have had less of a serious bad drug issue. But that's not the case. No, that's not the case. And, and you know, I think views and perceptions of marijuana are changing uh, from a medical standpoint. I think people uh, for quite some time have found value in medical marijuana and medicinal use, which is why you're seeing some uh, of the perceptions of legalizing marijuana change. Uh, but it's also interesting that once you get the government uh, involved in doing anything and nothing ever goes smoothly, right? There's always You're some right. bumps in the road <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and there's always more red tape. So I think there's at the end of the day, it, there's still going to be that black market need there as long as the governments are uh, trying to legalize and they keep kicking the can down the road and they can't come to uh, agreements fast enough. People are just going to keep doing what they know, doing what they're familiar with. And, you know, would would you want to buy medicinal marijuana from the government knowing you're paying a tax or do you just want to go to your local dealer and give him what you need and not have to pay tax? You get it's a discount. Kind of that, you it's know, a bit like maybe the illegal market for cigarettes in New York, New Jersey, and around that area. People go and pick them up, bootlegged cigarettes at a discount. 
rather than pay yep. the tax. To your point, I mean, what, cigarettes, a packet of cigarettes now in New York, I forgot, but you know, the taxes on them are horrendous. So people go to folks who don't charge any taxes. Yes, sir. Yeah, I I don't think the uh, the black market will ever go away. They're there's they're gonna adapt. They're gonna find new and creative ways to make their product a little more uh, desirable, if you will. And as long as the government uh, you know pokes their finger and stuff, they're they're never gonna make anything better. They're always going to find some way to muddy the waters just a little yeah. bit. But just to be clear, um, what are the drugs that the cartels are distributing? You know, give us two or three of them so that we get a, an idea here. Well, absolutely everything: meth, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, marijuana, ecstasy. I mean, those four right there alone are are huge uh, money makers for cartels. Uh, they've always been traditionally known to be a cocaine supplier, if you will. I think that's their dominant drug, marijuana, as well. Um, ecstasy has has definitely been on the rise uh, now over the recent years with the talks of fentanyl and all these other drugs. Uh, it just keeps getting higher and higher. No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, for for you know the the profit margins to rise as they expand their networks in these drugs, um, but it's it's really anything. It's it's um it's really crazy what they're they're able to get out there and and. I mean, you consume. can only imagine the corruption that spreads to wider society and to grand society and to the ranks of the elite even. I'm sure a lot of stuff goes on that doesn't get reported and a lot of brown bags get exchanged in very polite circles. I, well, yeah, just just look at our entertainment history, uh, you know, industry. How many artists and musicians have we lost from drug overdose? You know, it's it's a really sad uh, trail when you look back to the actors and actresses and and young people that are overdosing on heroin and fentanyl and and cocaine. Um, they just didn't walk down to CVS to pick it up, right? Uh, they're in these elite inner circles where they have people around them who know how to get these drugs and have access to them, and they're getting it for them. Sure. Um, so yeah, there there are some social circles that are very much uh, right in the thick of this, and, and this all definitely helps uh, the cartels' bottom lines. So you're not exactly romanticizing the cartels. You're troubled by their behaviors, it sounds like, like we should what? be. Well, absolutely. I mean, cartels in no way should be romanticized. You know, they, they are an evil uh, empire and an evil organization that kill and murder and torture and kidnap people uh, when they don't get what they want. Um, they don't allow uh, people to stand in their way of profit. Uh, they will kill you without hesitation. Um, and, and cartels really at the end of the day are a murderous organization. Yeah. My book really stems from the complexity of the family. Um, mm-hmm. I want people to understand that these, these very uh, spider web storylines that you're going to see is really where all this anxiety is going to emanate from this, this, you know, mother Gabriella, who, you know, is a very powerful, cunning businesswoman in her own right, uh, doesn't bake cookies on Saturday for her family, but is yet still a mother. She's mm. conflicted on how, how does she keep her family from being torn apart? You have this egomaniac father who wants this power and control and, and loves his family, yes, but would still make decisions to better himself rather than his family. His son, Ignacio, is going to challenge him and, and 
test him and they're going to fight and they're going to, they're going to have all this conflict. And then the two brothers, Santino and Ignacio are going to butt heads because Santino sees Ignacio as this bully, this murderous bully. And, you know, Ignacio sees Santino as this weak little mama's boy who, you know, didn't follow the family business. And then Vicente and Aurelio, two brothers on opposite ends where Aurelio is trying to clean his country up, but can't because of his murderous brother. And, and that's really, Really, the 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 chaos within the family. Like I said, we know they're a cartel. We know they're gonna, you know, make their money from the drugs and all this. And that's not really what I spotlight. I, I sprinkle it through, you know, so people are smart enough to know what they are about and what they're gonna do. But all of this comes from just this uh, deceitfulness of this family and and how it's ultimately gonna end. I'm just going to read from a few headlines and stories recently just to give us an idea how serious this problem is. Drug cartels back in business as at border, thanks to to Biden. I mean, that has a political bias there, of course. And then there's another story here, if I can find it. And this shocked me. Um, If you're not paying attention, these things are going on out there. This is recently, last month, reported 18 people were killed during a bloody shootout between suspected Mexican drug cartels on Friday. The gang fight happened in a remote area of some state, which I cannot pronounce. My Spanish and Mexican, <laughs> terrible. It's okay. It's okay. Um, ask me to speak Gaelic, my, my native language, maybe. Um, just north of uh, Mexico City, according to several reports. But anyway, the point of me bringing that up is, 18 people. I mean, that's just one story. So there's murder and mayhem and bloody disaster because of the cartels. Absolutely. You're you're never going to have a picnic when two rival cartels, you know, get together. There there's always going to be a struggle for power. There's always going to be a struggle for supremacy and domination. Um and and they're not going to do it uh diplomatically. They're going to break out the big artillery, the heavy artillery, and they're going to shoot it out. And they're going to make their points. They're going to make their statements uh, visibly if need be. And that's just their modus operandi is they're going to make loud uh, noise. And once that battle's over, they're going to go back and they're going to bandage up their wounds and they're going to come back and they're going to do it again another day. Uh, When you're talking about billions of dollars uh, potentially to be made from trafficking drugs and siphoning oil and and rental properties and vacation properties, uh, there, there isn't going to be a nice or a kind word said. And, and at this point, like I said, to say it's uh, overwhelming would be a very uh, soft statement to use. It's, it's, I don't know how you get your arms around this at this point, if, if it's even doable. You mentioned family, La Familia. You yourself have a fascinating family background and it wasn't always easy. Could you just maybe give us a flavor here, how you came to be a writer and the trajectory your life took? Absolutely. So I grew up with a single mom. Um, My mother and father split when I was a little boy, but my mom realized she still needed to raise a young man. Um, And she did that. She worked two jobs at some points to put food on the table. And then around the age seven, uh, she started dating a gentleman who uh, they had stayed together for the next seven years of my life, but he was extremely abusive to my mother. He beat her up and punched her and kicked her. And uh, he too sold drugs and guns and had police officers at his friends. And he was kind of your, your neighborhood, you know, player, if you will. 
uh, witnessed incredible acts of violence against my mother. I saved her life a couple times from being choked. I'm pretty sure a few times he also had contracts out on us to be killed. Um, and one day when I was 14, my mom uh, decided she had enough and went after him with a hammer. And I think that was his wake up call because I didn't uh, see him again after that. Uh, and that was a really impressionable time for me because I, I, I never understood up until my late thirties, I never really understood why I was put in that position to witness all that violence and, and anxiety and, and torment. And one day I just kind of had the epiphany that, you know, you, you grew up in that environment to understand what a man is and is not and, and how to value those that you love and treat those that you love uh, with kindness and respect. And here I sit today, a father of two beautiful daughters, uh, one who is about to be a mother herself uh, in uh, December, January timeframe of uh, a beautiful 11 year old little girl who is just awesome. My wife is amazing. And I couldn't imagine either one of them growing up the way I did, which is maybe why I'm a little frustrated that they don't appreciate, you know, the simplicities of life and the things they have. <laughs> but yeah, it's, good, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's definitely a story to rise out of the ashes. And, and just a side note, uh, when my mom did separate from this gentleman, it actually uh, made my mother and my biological father, uh, kindle their relationship and get back together. Oh. Uh, yep. They, they rekindled their uh, romance and got married when I was 19 and they've been together ever since. So they have uh, lived at their property now for close to 27 years and they have their happily ever after. And I've been lucky enough to have my happily ever after as well. So very untraditional ending to a very mm -hmm. uh, violent upbringing. So a storybook ending, that's a book in itself. It, it is. I, I've told my story many times over to people uh, about how, you know, you can overcome obstacles in your life if, if you're really committed to changing them. And one of the things that I just absolutely not was not going to do was repeat uh, my childhood and how I grew up. And I was not going to let my daughters grow up in that type of an abusive environment. I didn't want them to live with the anxiety that I lived with. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very happy to say that I've, I have my, uh, happily ever after ending storybook ending and my mother and my father do as well. I'm taken by the fact that you packed in your job and you took up writing. I mean, that's probably a dream many have, but don't succeed. Did people look at you and say you're crazy? No, uh, everybody's actually been super supportive and it's been really awesome. It, it, it took a little bit uh, of a leap of faith. I'll say that, um, you know, working 10 years in an industry to one day uh, just say, you know, hey, I'm done. I'm going to walk away was a made my heart beat a little bit more. I don't think my wife, uh, it gave her a little bit of anxiety as well, uh, but it was a good conversation to have. The interesting part is nobody really knew I had this in me. So as kind of start plugging the book and getting ready to release it. Everybody around me is like, whoa, who's this guy? You know, does he write? He does all this and he writes and, and everybody, <laughs> all my friends have been really supportive. Um, so it's, it's been an awesome adventure. It really has been. I, it took a little bit of courage to step away and, and feel comfortable that I could do this. You know, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a person usually when I set my mind to something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done. Uh, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm Taurus. And in the Chinese calendar, I'm a tiger. So I've got three, three really dominant traits right there. And when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And that's what I've been able to do. So it's been pretty awesome. 
you're a natural writer. You have a flair for writing. You have that creative talent. You didn't take any formal writing courses. I don't believe you finished college, which doesn't make you a good or bad person, but it's an interesting footnote to your story. That is correct. No, I have uh, no formal writing experience at all. Um, I did go to college for a couple years, and then I ended up flunking out. I dropped out. Uh, just College dropout, okay. Yep. I wasn't focused. I wasn't, uh, my mind wasn't where it needed to be. I was more focused on the partying and having fun than I was about my academics. Uh, so that's made life doubly hard for me. I've had to work extra hard to prove that I deserve to be where I am, you know, professionally previous from my uh, biopharmaceutical days up until now. Mm -hmm. uh, but writing has always been uh, very easy for me. I've never had an issue with sitting down and coming up with creative uh, ideas or thoughts in my head. It's just something that's flowed very naturally for me. And I've been very, very thankful for that. The first book is the one that you've been marketing most heavily. Sales are good. If you give us any sense of that, have they exceeded your expectation? Sales have definitely exceeded my expectations. You know, that's like I said, for my first book, it's been a very uh, welcome um, experience. Uh, the second book is going to be dropping next month, and hopefully that'll be, you know, an even bigger follow up uh, than the first book. So yeah, this this has been a really great uh, ride, and and this is just the first stop. You know, as as this book series gets done, and and I finalize this, then we're going to go to La Familia 2.0, and we're going to make this a TV series. We have to. It sounds just perfect for TV. Netflix would love to pick that up. I'm sure. I, and I would love to write it. You know, I, I have so many actors in my mind when I write this story that I see playing these characters, uh, which makes it a little easier for me to write as well, because I hear their voices, I see their mannerisms, and it really makes it easy for me to write these characters. So um, yeah, I, I would love to take this. My plan is to take this, uh, to write this for television once the series is done, or as I'm ready to release that last book and, and get this out there. I, I feel like this is something I would like to sit down and watch on television someday. And, and I know that's coming from a biased place, but yeah, I, I would love to sit and watch this someday. Well, we'll have to have you back when that happens. I, I feel it's going to happen. And you know, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you, Corey Sapida. Uh, have I pronounced your name correctly? Yes, sir. Two points I for you. Oh, fantastic. That makes me feel even better. You have a good <laughs> summer and good luck with all the writing. Thank you very much, John. It's been awesome pleasure talking with you, and I hope I will be back someday as well. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.